This, 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 this is K-U-T. K-U-T. K-U-T, Austin. Stop. This is KUT Weekend for the third weekend of December 2017. Thank you for listening. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5, the NPR station in Austin, Texas. Here's what we got for you this week. Austin's battle over zoning and how it all goes back to a U.S. Supreme Court case from the 1920s. The court discussed apartments and said that in the wrong setting, an apartment can be a parasite. Local public school officials consider what to do about six East Austin schools that don't have enough students. We have to have those difficult conversations. And why it's been such a bad year for pecans in Central Texas. It's the worst year I've ever seen. Those stories and more in this edition of KUT Weekend. All right, let's go ahead and get started. The Austin City Council held a public hearing this week that drew a lot of attention on whether to agree with a labor deal with the city's police force, which has almost 2,000 officers. We have nearly 150 people signed up to speak on this issue thus far. I expect that number to rise. There were civil rights activists, police officers, and residents who testified for seven hours, both for and against the proposed contract. Austin Police Lieutenant Gina Curtis pleaded with the council to adopt the contract that both sides had agreed to. If you vote no on the contract today, which you may very well do, that we're going to be taking steps back in time, does everyone in this room realize that without a contract, we lose most everything that we have before us? We go back to zero. Most speakers wanted increased transparency in the new contract, like Reggie James, director of the Lone Star chapter of the Sierra Club. James says he is a family friend of Morgan Rankins, who was shot earlier this year by APD officers. We can't let the police police themselves. They've got a full-time job keeping me safe, and I, I respect them for that and I support them for that. But they have a culture, and they have a culture of protecting themselves. At the end of it all, Councilmember Allison Alter summed up the prevailing position of the city council. We've talked a lot about the numbers tonight. At the end of the night, we have to understand that if our police department is going to be the highest paid, then we must also expect the highest level of transparency and accountability. The city council unanimously rejected the five-year contract between the city and the local police union. This was unprecedented. The the city says the council has never rejected a proposed police contract in the two decades since it has had one. So now the interim chief of the Austin Police Department says he's waiting for a decision from the police union on whether to renegotiate the rejected police contract proposal. KUT's Delia Jones has that. The Austin Police Association's board and members are meeting over the next few days to decide whether to restart negotiations on a new contract for Austin police. Without a new contract, interim police chief Brian Manley says they'll face budget challenges with the hiring and retention of officers. And I await the decision to find out whether or not they will in fact go back to the table and renegotiate or whether I need to be prepared to run this department under civil service law effective December 30th. If the APA moves forward with renegotiations, a new contract could get a vote from the city council in March. Delia Jones, KUT News. Texas Congressmember Blake Farenthold is dropping his bid for another term. As KUT's Joseph Leahy reports, the Corpus Christi-based Republican faced a tough primary after allegations of sexual harassment and verbal abuse. 
By Monday's filing deadline, five Republicans had signed up to unseat the four-term incumbent whose district includes parts of Bastrop and Caldwell counties. Farenthold is facing a House Ethics Committee investigation for allegations he sexually harassed female staffers. In a video to constituents today, Farenthold said his inexperience running a congressional office allowed for what he described as a permissive and unprofessional work environment. And I allowed the personal stress of the job to manifest itself in angry outbursts and too often a failure to treat people with the respect that they deserved. That was wrong. But Farenthold maintains the sexual harassment charges against him are false. He plans to serve the remainder of his term, which ends in January 2019. Joseph Leahy, KUT News. Some decisions made by the U.S. Supreme Court stand at the test of time. That includes one case that's gone unchallenged for nearly a century. It's a case that in some ways Austin is currently rehashing. I'm talking about Code Next. That's the city's process of rewriting the rules that determine what you can build where in the city. And as KOT's Audrey McGlinchey reports, if you listen closely enough, you can hear how the current fight sounds a lot like the one that took place 90 years ago in the nation's highest court. Last month, nearly 200 people filled a Presbyterian church in northwest Austin. Attendees sat in maroon leather back chairs. One man in the back row read a book and only looked up every so often to see what was going on. Mayor Steve Adler sat near the pulpit. Mayor, you get the, you get the big seat. He'd come to answer questions about Code Next from members of the Allendale Neighborhood Association. This is a, a, a magical place, I think. As magical as Austin may be, lines have been drawn across the city over Code Next. Do we allow for denser housing? If so, where? How will this affect affordability, gentrification, both current and future? On that November night, talk quickly turned to housing types. One of the goals of Code Next is to create more housing choices, something other than the single-family homes and large apartment buildings that dominate the city. But duplexes, triplexes can be a hard sell when oftentimes it means tearing down a current home. When a home is torn down uh, and a duplex is, is built instead of a single family home, that each one of the duplex units costs less than what the single family, then, no, 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 each one individually costs less because, because, they're, because they're smaller. I've been to a lot of these meetings. The idea of a city telling any neighborhood what can be built there gets booed. So how did we get here? How did cities get the right to tell us what we could do with our property? I mean, in a historical sense, like way back. It all starts with a court case in Ohio. And sure, law stories can be boring, all that legalese. But at its core, this is a love story. He marries a woman and is deeply in love with her. Devoted to her, crazy about her. And she dies. We'll get to that. The year's 1922. We're in a small Ohio town called Euclid. Which is a suburb of Cleveland, right next to the uh, Cleveland, right on the lake. Lake Erie. Populations fewer than 10,000 people. I'm Bill Fischel. I'm professor of economics 
at Dartmouth College. Fischel writes about the economics of zoning. At the turn of the 20th century, cities began telling property owners what they could do with their land. In 1916, New York City adopted its first comprehensive zoning plan. The whole idea behind these first plans was to ensure citizens' health and safety. For example, maybe we shouldn't build a factory near a house. The village of Euclid adopted its first zoning plan in 1922, but at least one family was unhappy. One of the property owners who's, who wanted to use his property for industrial use had part of it zoned for residential use. Their name was Ambler, William and his son, William. The uh, owner of the Ambler Realty Company took it to court. By rezoning the land, the Amblers argued, the town had run them out of money. So the company sued Euclid for violating its private property rights. A man named Newton Baker represented the realty company. And he won. Uh, had the, the entire zoning law struck down in federal court, the initial trial court. In his decision, Judge David Weston Haver deemed comprehensive zoning by a city unconstitutional. In his opinion, he wrote about what he saw as zoning's negative effects. The true reason why some persons live in a mansion and others in a shack, why some live in a single-family dwelling and others in a double-family dwelling, why some live in a two-family dwelling and others in an apartment, or why some live in a well-kept apartment and others in a tenement, is primarily economic. He went on. The result to be accomplished is to classify the population population and to segregate segregate them. them according to their income. That's the language that the lower court used. Hi, my name is Richard Kallenberg. I'm a senior fellow at the Century Foundation. That's a left-leaning think tank in New York. Kallenberg wrote an op-ed in the New York Times earlier this year. He argued that the decision of this lower court nearly 100 years ago was a prophetic one, that separating types of houses creates economically segregated cities. In communities that have higher levels of exclusionary zoning uh, allowed by the Supreme Court in Euclid, we see much greater uh, economic segregation of people. And that matters because where you live has a great deal to do with what kind of life you can enjoy. But the lower court's decision was nothing but a pit stop in the journey of Euclid versus Ambler. The village appealed. Then, uh, when this got to the Supreme Court... Oh, oh, actually, Richard, Uh, I did forget. Oh, one second. I promised people a love story. A man named James Metzenbaum was on the village council for the approval of Euclid zoning plan in 1922. He'd lived in the village with his wife, Bessie. And as the story goes, he was a devoted husband. They were married for more than a decade before she died suddenly in 1920. At that point, the um, sad lawyer moved back to a hotel in Cleveland. Michael Wolf is a local government professor at the University of Florida. He wrote a book titled Zoning in America, Euclid versus Ambler. And he says Metzenbaum visited his wife's grave often, so much so that... He had a fireplace installed in the mausoleum in a bed where he used to spend the night. I know this is quite morbid. Bessie's grave lay on the east side of Cleveland in a cemetery on what was called Euclid Avenue. Driving from Cleveland to Euclid, Metzenbaum would have passed her grave. He had such an affection for wanting to preserve the character of that town, that village that he had lived with his former wife, with his late wife. When the town was sued, Metzenbaum agreed to represent Euclid, which brings us to the Supreme Court. The Honorable, the Chief Justice, and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Oye, oye. 
The case was argued twice in front of the court. Finally, on November 22, 1926, an opinion came down. If not for James Messenbaum's zealous devotion to his wife, maybe the folks in Austin wouldn't have anything to complain about right now. In other words, as Wolf says, a broken heart got us zoning. The village of Euclid had won. The local government had made a, a not unreasonable decision to divide the village up and to classify land by use, area, and height. They have the power, in fact, I would argue they have the authority to regulate on behalf of the public to protect the public health, safety, morals, and general welfare. For Euclid, that meant keeping factories out of neighborhoods. But that wasn't the only part of the decision. In Euclid's zoning plan, the village separated single-family homes from duplexes, duplexes from apartments. The Supreme Court said that was okay, too. In part of the opinion, the court discussed apartments and said that in the wrong setting, an apartment can be a parasite. It can monopolize the rays of the sun and otherwise create situations that might endanger health and safety. Justice George Sutherland, one of the more conservative justices, wrote the opinion. He talked about why single-family neighborhoods should be protected from other denser housing. The coming of one apartment house is followed by others, interfering by their height and bulk with the free circulation of air and monopolizing the rays of the sun, which otherwise would fall upon smaller homes, and bringing as their necessary accompaniment the disturbing noise incident to increase traffic and business, and the occupations by means of moving and parked automobiles of larger portions of the street, thus depriving children of privilege of quiet and open spaces to play, enjoyed by those in favored localities until finally, the residential character of the neighborhood and its desirability as a place of detached residents are utterly destroyed. There's a lot of vacant and commercially underutilized space in Austin We're back in Allendale in the present day. At this meeting, it's hard not to hear echoes of that 1926 Supreme Court opinion. Why is there not a concerted effort to develop that land before destroying the quality of traditional central city neighborhoods? Scott Ehlers, the Neighborhood Association president, reads off questions for the mayor. Another woman stands up to talk about parking. Right now... Right now, we're so packed with cars. <laughs> it's crazy off of Burnett. And when you want to increase housing density, how are we going to get around? We can barely get to the HEB. <gasps> Thank you. Euclid versus Ambler gave Austin and other municipalities across the country the legal right to zone and rezone their land. In a city where nearly half the housing units are single-family homes, it also gave some Austin neighborhoods arguments against change. But Euclid versus Ambler gave us one more thing, and this one's really bad. Two years after the Supreme Court declared zoning to be legal, the city of Austin approved its first comprehensive zoning plan. The 1928 plan denied services to black residents who did not live east of what is now I-35. In many ways, it created the segregated city we've inherited today. Some hope code next can desegregate the city. Others hope it won't make current segregation worse. Audrey McGlinchey, KUT News. When we talk about housing and land use in Austin, there are a lot of buzzwords that get thrown around. Things like neighborhood character and density. These words that tend to divide people along ideological lines. So what do people actually mean when they use these words? And why do they elicit such strong reactions? 
KUT Saida Hassan has more on the public discussion around code next. It was a sunny Saturday morning this past October, the day of the annual Texas OU football game. At the city's Asian American Resource Center, about 50 people gathered for something a little less action-packed, a meeting of Austin's Zoning and Platting Commission. So let us start our special called meeting. The Zoning Commission deals with issues of land use. On this particular Saturday, the commission was hosting a, quote, listening session. It was a chance for residents to share their input on Code Next. Code Next is a train wreck. For years, I went to advisory meetings. There was a lot of that. If you're not up on municipal politics, Code Next is an overhaul of the city's land development code. More than a thousand pages of technical language that, if approved, would govern what can be built in the city and where it can go. A lot of people see this process as a chance to shape Austin's future. About 20 minutes into that October ZAP meeting, Mary Ingle stepped up to the mic. She's a former president of the Austin Neighborhoods Council, a coalition of some of the city's oldest community groups. Ingle had a lot to say about Code Next. This process has been a cram down from the day one. She said Code Next was too long and complicated, that it doesn't respect neighborhood plans, among other things. And then she brought up a specific case, a building proposed near her central Austin neighborhood. And there was a case at the Board of Adjustments where somebody tried to cram a 17,000 square foot building on a 6,000 square foot lot. This is not Calcutta. I couldn't help but wonder, what did she mean by that? Before we go any further, we should note that Calcutta no longer exists. The city changed its name back to its original Golgatha in 2001 in a rejection of the whitewashing effects of British imperialism. Anyway, I called Ingle to talk code next and try and get clarity on her comments. Hello? Hi, is this Mary? Yes. It's Saida at KUT. Ingle shared her concerns about the new code. She said it isn't compatible with her neighborhood. Then we got back to that October meeting. You brought up at the ZAP meeting a case that was before the Board of Adjustments. And in referencing that case, you the way that you characterized it was you said that this is not Calcutta. Um, what did you mean by that comment? I'm not going to speak about that. Ingle said she had fought against that development, and she refused to talk about it any further. I told her I wasn't so much interested in that case as I was her comparison of Austin to Calcutta. There was no comparison from Austin to Calcutta. So you were, but you said that. Look, I'm not speaking about this, okay, because it's irrelevant to Code Next. I've been to Calcutta. I know what it looks like there. I know how much pollution they have to deal with. I know how packed in and overpopulated it is and how much poverty there is. That's about as far as we got. Ingle told me to research the case she was referencing, and then I'd understand why she brought up Calcutta. I looked into that case, but before we get to what I found, I wanted to get back to the choice of Calcutta and how that word registered with other people who were in the room. I mean... It stood out to you for a reason. It's because it's highly, highly offensive. That's Stephanie Trin. Until recently, she served on the Zoning and Platting Commission, and she was at that October meeting. Trin says it's puzzling and problematic that Ingle would compare Austin to a city of brown people. She notes that many other places, like Manhattan, also have a higher population density. You know, maybe that she's visioning a city that is incredibly dense and lower income and and kind of looks like a slum is perhaps what she's talking about. 
I think that there's definitely racial overtones in that statement. Trin says she can't presume to know the intent behind Ingle's words. But I found it to be incredibly insensitive and and kind of a, a fear-mongering statement to a very white room. The thing is, whenever people talk about Code Next, there's a lot of hyperbole that gets thrown around. To talk more about this, I met with Elizabeth Mueller. She's an associate professor of community and regional planning at UT. A lot of my work revolves around the tension between the goals of city planning and the goals of social equity in cities. We talked about how people tend to use coded language, words that can serve as a sort of shorthand for their broader political views. Mueller and I went over a couple of the common buzzwords used at zoning meetings. A big one is density. Taken literally, it refers to the number of housing units in a given area. But some people are afraid of density because they don't want to see the character of their neighborhood change. And for them, density might mean adding a secondary unit behind your house. For other people, density might mean adding a large multifamily building. And then there's neighborhood character. Of course, this phrase takes on different meanings depending on where you live and what you value about that place. People who are concerned about change in the character of their neighborhood are concerned right now about their own ability to stay in their neighborhood, and they fear that changing the amount of development allowed in their neighborhood is going to increase the pressure, or they just may be afraid of, they just don't want a different character of their neighborhood as well. Mueller says it's important to put these discussions in context. Austin has a history of racial segregation when it comes to land use. The city's 1928 master plan notoriously divided residents along racial lines, relegating black and brown people to the area east of I-35. Today, the city remains one of the most economically segregated in the nation. I mean, we do have a problematic history here of of using zoning and planning in exclusionary ways, and it's part of what's produced the underlying pattern that, that we're overlaying all these things on. And sometimes the way we're talking about these things are not really acknowledging that. She says when people rely on buzzwords, it makes it hard to get to the core of land use issues. And the tense political divisions around these concepts can make public meetings an intimidating space. There's a small group of people who are really engaged and have spent a lot of time learning about this who are able to speak the same language as the planners. But I think there's a lot of people who are hearing about this for the first time or newcomers to it, and it's very difficult to engage in the discussion. Still, she says this kind of coded language can be a way to express anxiety around Code Next. Which brings us back to Mary Ingle. I worked to track down the case she mentioned at that zoning meeting, the one that prompted her to say, this is not Calcutta. And I found one that came before the city's Board of Adjustment in 2016. It centered on a new student housing co-op proposed for West Campus. The project matched the square footage Ingle had detailed. The developer asked the board to reduce the number of required parking spaces. Ingle spoke against his request. Please do not grant this variance. Every car that comes to West Campus that can't be parked ends up in our neighborhoods, and I know that you all live in She spoke for about five minutes about parking and traffic. She made no mention of Calcutta. I called Ingle back to tell her what I'd found, and she maintained that I had the wrong case. She wouldn't tell me what the right one was. But I wanted to give Ingle a chance to respond to what people were saying, that her comparison of Austin to Calcutta was racially insensitive. 
there's obviously plenty of cities in the world that have a higher population sure, density. I could have said, this is not Manhattan, whatever. I made that reference because what came to mind was an over-densification. I have been to Calcutta. I used to teach squash at UT with all the Indian students. I love Indian people. Why would I make a racial statement? I asked Ingle whether it's possible that people could have been offended by her choice of words without that being her intention. She said after that meeting, an Indian man approached her and said, I heard your remarks. You're right. Saida Hassan, KUT News. If you had a strong reaction to that story, you are not alone. We received a lot of feedback on it. Much of it has been negative, which is usually the case with feedback. People who like a story are often not motivated to respond, the people who love it. But we do usually hear from people who dislike a story. And it was enough that our managing editor, KUT's Matt Largy, who edited the story that Saida wrote, he was the editor on the story, he wrote a post responding to much of it. Hi, Matt. Hi. So here's an example that uh, you pointed out in your post. Quote, I find it highly offensive and poor journalism, your Code Next piece today implying Mary Ingle is a racist as well as all the other Code Next opponents, end quote. So what was your response to the criticism that we received from the story and, and specifically a lot of it? that fell along those kinds of lines were, were painting her as a racist. Yeah, a lot of people felt like we had treated her unfairly, that we had made her out to be a quote-unquote racist. My response to that was, if people took that away, you know, I offer Mary an apology. I don't know what's in her heart. I can't say you're a racist. I would never say something like that. But what we do know is what she said. And what she said was offensive to people. And that's what we were trying to highlight in that story. We're trying to highlight that the words that people use in these discussions, that that they matter, that poorly chosen words can have an effect on the debate. They can have a, an effect on people trying to participate in that debate. They can alienate people from that debate. Just like many of the other words that are used in the Code Next discussion, they're often technical terms. They're often sort of code words for things that mean a lot of different things. And well, that can make it hard for people to participate in the discussion. And there has been an extremely low level of participation in the Code Next discussion, despite repeated city efforts to engage more people in the process. So I think that's a salient point. Another line of criticism that I saw in some of the emails sent to us was that there are so many other issues to dealing with code next. Why would you focus on this? What was your response to that? Well, we have focused on that. I mean, we've been covering code next for three years. Uh, we do a story on code next at least weekly, sometimes more than that, much of it delving into the the intricacies of the code. And to tell you the truth, we feel like that's all very reasonable reporting. We feel felt like this is also a worthwhile line of inquiry. KUT's managing editor, Matt Largy, who was the editor on this piece, and uh, appreciate your you know transparency and just responding to people instead of trying to ignore. What yeah, they have to say. yeah, we're trying we're trying to be very open about this. We think this is a discussion that should be had. So we're happy that it's happening. Thanks, Matt. Thank you.
Democrats have signed up in droves to run for public office in Texas next year. All of the state's congressional seats have a Democratic candidate. And almost 90% of the seats in the Texas legislature will have a Democratic candidate. KUT's Ashley Lopez reports the increase in candidates is part of a national backlash against the Trump administration. Manny Garcia with the Texas Democratic Party says it's a big deal that Democrats are running in every single one of Texas's 36 congressional seats in 2018. We've looked all the way back to 1992. Um, And that hasn't been done in any of that time span. Garcia says ever since President Trump was elected, Democrats have been organizing with an eye towards 2018. He says this is something that is happening all over the country right now. Well, I think a lot of folks are sensing that there's a sea change coming. I think they're, they're seeing that there's a blue wave moving all across the country. But it's not just the president that's driving momentum. Texas Democrats think they have a shot at taking four seats in Congress away from Republicans next year. Three of those seats are districts that Hillary Clinton won in the 2016 presidential election. But Republican strategist Brendan Steinhauser thinks the party will hold on to those seats. So those three members of Congress overperformed uh, Donald Trump on the ballot, and they did win re-election. So if you're looking ahead to 2018, it, it does seem like they're going to win in 2018, given that Republicans do tend to do better in midterms uh, than they do in the presidential years. But he says turnout could be the wild card. He says it would take a lot of Republicans staying home for them to lose a seat. But he expects Democrats will be turning out in big numbers. Even so, Steinhauser says a lot of these seats are still pretty safe for Republicans. And although with this year, it's hard to tell Uh, Because predicting politics these days is just a a fool's errand. And Mark Jones, a political science fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute, says one of the biggest influences on how this election turns out is money. And he says Democrats are doing well there, too. We're looking at record amounts of money raised by Democratic challengers in the Republican districts in Texas this year. Ashley Lopez, KUT News. Austin voters approved a billion-dollar bond for this school district in November. And that includes money designated to help better use district facilities. That could mean renovating a school. That could mean consolidating schools that are currently under-enrolled. KUT's Claire McInerney reports on what that plan would mean for six schools in East Austin. The whole discussion over what to do with the six schools comes down to enrollment. Norman, Sims, Metz, Sanchez, Zavala, and Brooke all house significantly fewer students than the buildings can handle. And it's costly to pay for utilities and staff in underutilized buildings. So a few years ago, the district created a master plan for all schools in the district, and these six were designated as schools to focus on. Edmund Oropez, AISD's Chief Officer for Teaching and Learning, says the district is approaching this problem in two ways. One, we're going to focus on how do we increase enrollment at those campuses that are underenrolled, and the second thing is continue the conversations as we move forward on what does the future of those campuses look like. What he means by discussing the future is having the conversations around what happens if enrollment doesn't go up. For example, Norman and Sims Elementary Schools got $25 million from the recently passed tax bond. One of those schools will get a complete renovation. And if after a few years, both are still under-enrolled, they'll consolidate into the renovated school. The district and school board will decide by February which school will get renovated. This is the same situation for Metz, Zavala, and Sanchez Elementary Schools. One of these schools will receive a total renovation and could later consolidate if the three schools don't see an increase in enrollment over the next few years. Again, AISD's Oropez. 
if the population cannot support multiple schools, we have to have those difficult conversations to say. Now, we're trying to, if that, that does happen, we have a modern state-of-the-art facility where that can serve like multiple schools. But those plans have upset some parents. The community at Brook Elementary spent the week under the impression their school would close either this or next school year. The district hosted a meeting Wednesday to discuss the future for the school, one of the most under-enrolled in the district. Sandra Cresswell, Associate Superintendent for Elementary Schools, acknowledged the district's role in the miscommunication. There's been some conflicting stories, and, and I'm just going to own it and say that some of it is because we put the cart before the horse. We wanted to look at all possibilities, but unfortunately, the one that got the most attention was that closing brook. The district and these schools have several challenges ahead to boost enrollment. One of the biggest can't really be fixed by AASD. Home prices in East Austin have skyrocketed in recent years, making it harder for some families to remain in that part of town or afford to move in in the first place. Claire McInerney, KUT News. This week, the state of Texas took toll lanes off the table as an option to manage traffic on I-35 through central Austin. The Texas Transportation Commission voted to remove toll projects from its 10-year unified transportation program. So that means they're not happening. This move came after pressure from Governor Greg Abbott, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, Both of them said they had promised voters fewer toll roads, and they point to billions of dollars in additional sales tax revenue that's being reallocated to transportation. It's part of a constitutional amendment voters approved in 2015. State Representative Celia Israel of Austin was among a group of local officials that included the mayor and county commissioners who supported adding two toll lanes in each direction on I-35 through Austin. To say that I'm disappointed is an understatement, that we are saying no to tolls, no to managed lanes, and no to any new revenue that could come from fines or gas taxes. So you you take everything off the table and you put your head in the sand. State Senator Kirk Watson, an Austin Democrat, says the vote by the Transportation Commission to get rid of toll roads from their 10-year plan puts at risk toll lane projects on U.S. 183 North in Austin and Mopac South, along with plans for the Y and Oak Hill and additional capacity on SH 130. City and state officials are really good at counting cars to see how bad the traffic is in Austin. That sort of data collection infrastructure does not exist for bikes and pedestrians. But as KUT's Andrew Weber reports, new research hopes to change that. The project has a simple goal, but you wouldn't glean it from its name. Evaluation of bicycle and pedestrian monitoring equipment to establish collection database methodologies for estimating non-motorized transportation. That's Greg Griffin. He's a transportation researcher with the Texas A&M Transportation Institute, helping out on a TxDOT-backed pilot program. It not only counts cyclists and pedestrians in both Austin and Houston, but it aims to figure out a way to share that data statewide. 
Cities and counties already count the volume of cyclists and pedestrians along roadways for planning purposes, something Griffin used to do as a city planner for the Capital Area Metropolitan Planning Organization, which builds, manages, and studies transportation infrastructure in central Texas. But those counts aren't necessarily consistent. The data is not always shared with their state counterparts at TxDOT. Griffin says the project is about nuance, a nuance that he says is not often afforded to researchers collecting that kind of data. Our transportation agencies haven't uh, been able to put the resources into doing nuanced counts of bicyclists and pedestrians all over cities. So Griffin and his fellow researchers are both collecting this data and trying to figure out how to store it, all without spending an insane amount of money. One easy way to do this is to have the pedestrians and cyclists do the work for you by using crowdsourced data from open platforms like Strava or Ride Report. But big data is not the silver bullet some may think it is. People will say, well, big data is better, right? Well, no, not necessarily. And we have to understand what's really going on in the world. And we do that, you know, with 100% counts of all the people that are actually biking in an area. Not everybody has a smartphone. And even the people who do don't necessarily use those apps while they're biking or walking. So to create a 100% accurate snapshot, sometimes the old ways are the best. Researchers are using pneumatic tubes, like TxDOT uses in its car counting, to measure capacity along roads like Lamar. The thin rubber tubes are embedded with sensors that give a relative sense of how fast cyclists are going and count the number of cyclists on a given roadway. But they're not a permanent solution. They're nailed into a handful of bike lanes for a few weeks, and then they're gone. So Griffin's using data from the permanent bike counters set up by the city that are embedded in bike paths. They operate at high traffic areas, provide constant data, and they're sturdier than a thin rubber tube with a sensor in it. All of this helps give a clear picture of where people are biking and walking and where the city should spend money from the $482 million corridor project that was funded by last year's mobility bond. These data could help inform future projects as they're built out, but there's a problem. It's still short term. That's Texas State political science professor Billy Fields. A few weeks back, Greg and he got into a bit of a tiff about this sort of research at their kids' soccer game. Fields argues quantity over quality. He says the pilot program is well-intentioned, but it's grant-funded. There are no guarantees it will continue after the money runs out. The key issue is that we need to do this consistently. It's not a one-time deal. It's an every-year deal. That's what uh, essentially traffic, uh, auto traffic data is about. It's about doing it consistently and managing the system that way. And we don't do that. We need to institutionalize that data collection system. To get a good picture, Field says you can get just some of the numbers on a consistent basis to see where crashes happen and where cyclists and pedestrians are going and where they're not. It's basically the length of time that you do these counts that it uh, matters for. And then instead of doing sort of an academic paper, uh, I like academic papers, that's what I do, uh, but you need to get that data out for people to hear it. So doing a report every year to show where we are. Ultimately, both of them agree, no matter how the data is being collected, there are more people walking and biking in Austin and across Texas. But when the research collection wraps up in February, the city planner side of Griffin hopes the database could help cities and TxDOT coordinate to make safer roads for everybody. That means building out safer bike lanes and more pedestrian-friendly crosswalks, while also reducing traffic on busy roadways. Because everybody agrees, traffic is the worst. You can't do that without counts. And so that's why this uh, this kind of research is important, is that it, it's not just interesting. It lays the foundation for being able to save lives through infrastructure changes. Andrew Weber, KUT News.
It is prime pecan hunting season in Central Texas, the time of year where you might notice people in front yards and city parks staring intently on the ground, waiting for a windfall of the Texas state nut. Except there seems to be fewer of those nuts around these days. KUT's Mose Bouchelle looked into why. Cracking pecans is a noisy business. Just ask John Camden. Especially when all four machines are running, it's deafening. He's a volunteer at the Lamar Senior Activity Center. Every year, the center raises money cracking pecans. You bring them in, they crack them in their machines for 50 cents a pound. It's one of the center's biggest fundraisers. Usually one of the biggest fundraisers. Last year, for sure. This year, uh, it's going to be low on the list. This year, the machines are often silent. So slow that it's boring. We sit down there and wait for people to bring pecans in. It's the worst year I've ever seen. Why no pecans? Part of it is the way pecan trees work. See, they take a year off in between productive years to rest and build up energy. If you go back to historical records when Cabeza de Vaca was stranded in Texas in the, what, 1500s, he made observations, some of the first written observations about pecan being alternate Bearing. This is Monty Nesbitt. He's a specialist with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. He says that cycle gets amplified when pecan trees in different parts of the state sync up with each other. In other words, they all have a good year together, which leads to a bad year the next year. And they do that in response to local weather. So if a year is too wet or too dry in Austin, maybe local trees will wait to the next year to make pecans. Then that cycle gets locked in locally. Uh, we can go back to 2011, that severe drought year, and it kind of threw areas within Texas out of cycle from one another. And so that, um, you know, pockets of Texas that are on and pockets of Texas that are off. Though that doesn't fully explain why this year seems to be so bad in Austin. One possibility there, last year's super warm winter could have discouraged the trees, too. And, and pecan trees not as affected with that as, say, an apple tree or a peach tree, but it was affected. If you're looking for a silver lining, Nesbitt says if we have a cooler winter and enough rain, that should mean a big harvest next year after the trees are well-rested and able to make more nuts. That's something John Camden at the Senior Center is counting on. Oh, my, yes. I think we will be. I think it'll be back. And in the meantime, he says, the center also sells nuts, in case you don't have any to bring in for cracking. Mose Bouchelle, KT News. That is KUT Weekend for the third weekend of December 2017. Thank you so much for listening. This commercial-free podcast is brought to you by the fine folks who are members of their local public radio station. And you can become a KUT member yourself by going to KUT.org and clicking on the Donate button in the top right. Uh, If not, hey, thank you for listening. You can always leave us a nice review in the iTunes store or tell your friends to subscribe at weekend.kut.org. You can email me any questions or comments, Nathan at KUT.org, or just ask me on Twitter. I'm at KUT Nathan. Our theme music is by RAC. Have a wonderful day. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5 and KUT.org. Bye.
Mm-hmm.